Let's pray. May I speak in the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and may we receive this word as the word of God to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Have you ever found yourself in a meeting with someone, or indeed several people, that you've been dreading beforehand, but to your surprise, it goes much better than you anticipated? Usually, there's some reason connected to our past for the fear. Maybe there's been some misunderstanding. Maybe a different way of looking at things, or we're different personality types. Maybe something has been said, or something has not been said. All of this can foster anxiety and colour how we approach the time we'll spend together. But I can think of two recent meetings within the context of church and family which were fraught with potential for tension, but in fact turned out to be remarkably positive. And in both of them, the grace and the power of God had been at work. Well, in the first part of chapter 2 of Galatians, I hope you've still got that open, Paul continues his autobiographical account of his conversion to Christ and then the relationship he subsequently has with the leaders of the Christian church who were based in Jerusalem. And he does so for a reason. You remember, the Galatian believers who are going to receive this letter were Gentiles, like us, most of us, non-Jews become Christians through the ministry of Paul and Barnabas. But since then, other teachers had come along from a Jewish background, and they were troubling the faith of these Galatians. They were undermining Paul in their eyes. In chapter 1 last week, we saw Paul dealing with their claim that he had no authority to preach. And here, Paul tackles their criticism that his gospel is different, somehow inferior, to the gospel preached by the other apostles in Jerusalem. After all, those apostles were the really important men, the new teachers maintain. They were the pillars of the church, not Paul. So Paul realizes much is at stake Whom should the Galatian Christians believe? The man who brought them the gospel with its promise of freedom? Or those back in Jerusalem who apparently want them to become Jews as well as Christians? You see, if doubt is cast on Paul, then the truth of the gospel may also be compromised. And Paul fears it might turn out that he has run his race in vain. So Paul turns to his own story to clarify truth. And what can his readers learn? What can we learn today? Well, first lesson, God reveals his purpose in his time. God reveals his purpose in his time. 
As we saw last week, when Paul received his direct personal revelation from Jesus Christ, he didn't go up to Jerusalem to check things out with the leaders there. Only after three years did he spend a fortnight getting to know Peter, and he also met James, the brother of Jesus. No one else in the churches of Judea knew him except by reputation. And now we see verse 1, 14 years later, that could either be after his conversion or after that first visit to Peter. Paul says, I went up again to Jerusalem, verse 2, I went in response to a revelation. In other words, Paul didn't go because he needed reassurance that he was preaching the true gospel. He didn't go because the other leaders summoned him to give an account of himself. Paul went because God told him to go. God said go. We don't know how this happened. Did he receive a prophecy? Something like Dave Cooper. Was it one of those inner nudges where we sense in our spirit the spirit of God prompting us to do something? However it came, Paul knew that this was not his own idea, but it came from God. And if he didn't realize the significance of the meeting at the time, he certainly did later on as he looked back. Why 14 years later? Well, we don't know. Presumably, after Paul had finished doing all the other stuff God wanted him to do in that time, But it does occur to me that 14 years is a long time. It's the time between a child starting school and leaving home as an adult. It's almost a generation. And so that time lag adds enormous weight to what Paul clarifies here. He says, verse 2, I set before them the gospel that I preach among the Gentiles. The gospel he received directly, supernaturally, from Jesus himself, and he's been preaching for the last 14 years at least. And when they heard it, end of verse 6, those men added nothing to my message. They found that Paul's gospel was complete. It had left nothing out. Verse 7, on the contrary, they saw that I had been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the Gentiles, just as Peter had been to the Jews. In other words, Paul and Peter were preaching the same gospel, only to two different groups of people. There was nothing inferior about Paul's preaching. It was fully endorsed by the other apostles in Jerusalem. Now, this seems to me quite remarkable. We have one man, Peter. He spends three years living and working alongside Jesus Christ with the other apostles. He's a witness to Jesus' death and resurrection, and he's there at Pentecost when the Holy Spirit is poured out to equip the apostles to preach that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord Jesus will be saved. And another man, Paul, 
quite independently, comes from hundreds of miles away in Tarsus, never met Jesus, has a vision of him while he's trying to destroy the Christian faith, goes immediately into Arabia, and when he comes back, spends some 14 years preaching the same gospel as Peter. This is God at work. And the timing of this particular meeting confirms it. And it means that today we can have real confidence when we read what Paul has written, that this is God's word to us, to us. But also I urge you, be open. Next time you sense that prompt to contact someone, even if you want to say, that's a bit impractical, that's a bit challenging, trust God, go for it. Because he may have plans that far exceed your understanding at the time, just as they did for Paul. God's revealing his purpose in his time. Secondly, God's grace is the same for Jews and for Gentiles. God's grace is the same for all. When Paul went on this visit, verse 1, it was with Barnabas And Titus and the people they met up with in Jerusalem were James, Peter, and John. Now, I want you to try and imagine how the different participants might have felt beforehand about this meeting based on what we know of their past. Paul had obviously met Peter and James briefly before, though we know from Acts that the apostles were initially afraid and suspicious of him, not surprising. This was the guy who was out to obliterate the church. And it needed Barnabas to come in between and reassure them that Paul had truly seen and heard the Lord Jesus. Now, both Paul and Barnabas, well, and Peter, James, and John, they were all Jews, but not so Titus. He was a Greek believer who had come to faith through Paul's preaching, therefore an uncircumcised Gentile. Taking him too was a daring step for Paul, perhaps even a provocative one. Would the apostles receive him as a brother, an equal recipient of God's grace? Or would they require him to be circumcised, effectively become a Jew, in addition to his faith in Jesus Christ? and thereby add, on top of the gospel, all the demands of God's law. So to begin to see and sense some of the tension and what was at stake, it seems from verse 3 that there were some who wanted to compel Titus to be circumcised, and that further pressure was put on the participants, verse 4 and 5, by some false brothers who infiltrated the ranks to spy on the freedom that we have in Christ Jesus and to make us slaves. Now Paul is talking here about those who said, it's not enough to believe in the Lord Jesus to be saved. No, you need Christ and. Christ and circumcision, Christ, and a whole load of other regulations from Jewish law. And Paul knew from his experience that they were a heavy burden. 
And that's why Paul is so emphatic. They shouldn't give in for a moment, verse 5, and Titus should not be compelled to be circumcised, which he was not. If Titus was a test case, then the outcome proved that Christ is all we need, whether Jew or Gentile. Verse 8, for God was equally at work in the ministry of Peter as an apostle to the Jews, as he was also at work in Paul's ministry to the Gentiles. The gospel is for both. God's grace extends to both. Christ is all we need. Now, we need to be careful that we do not put unhelpful pressure or lay guilt upon other Christians to feel that they're expected to follow Christ and. Christ and so many church meetings. Christ and so much Bible study. Christ and praying for a whole list of people. I remember once reading a reason someone gave for not becoming a Christian Oh, I couldn't possibly be a Christian. It's far too exhausting. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. And let's be careful what pressures we may unwittingly place upon others. Moving on. God does not judge by external appearance. God does not judge by appearances. Paul refers many times in this passage to the Jerusalem apostles in terms of their image, how they appeared to others. Partway through verse 2, those who seemed to be leaders, verse 6, those who seemed to be important, verse 9, those reputed to be pillars. Why does he do this? Well, I think Paul is using the language of his critics. This is how they present the Jerusalem apostles as the real leaders, next to whom Paul has an inferior apostleship. Now, I believe Paul personally respected them, wanted to work with them, wanted to share what he was doing, what he was preaching, but he was not overawed by their public persona. Verse 6 As for those who seem to be important, whatever they were makes no difference to me. God does not judge by external appearance. Whatever they were, these were the men who had walked with Jesus, witnessed his miracles, received the Spirit from his own breath. One was Jesus' own brother. Of course they seemed special. But Paul knows that ultimately appearances don't matter because they cut no ice with God. We cannot impress God. To each of us, whether Jew or Gentile, woman or man, poor or wealthy, impressive or pathetic, he gives the same grace. And from each of us, he looks for exactly the same response, faith. Faith. Faith is the great leveler. In faith, I recognize I can do absolutely nothing to save myself. Jesus 
has done it all. And it's this faith in the Lord Jesus Christ which unites all this group, this disparate group who met together in Jerusalem. And as an outward sign of this unity, verse 9, James, Peter, and John gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace given to me. Here was public recognition that Paul and Barnabas were fully accepted. They were partners in the one gospel. Yes, they had different spheres of ministry to Jews and to Gentiles, but they were united in their faith in Jesus Christ. Now, it's all too easy for us to judge other Christians whose style of worship or prayer or lifestyle or priorities are different from ours, as somehow less spiritual. I know because I've done it myself and I've been on the receiving end of it, and it is always destructive. Let's live by the truth that external appearance doesn't matter to God. It shouldn't to us. Whereas unity amongst believers does matter to God. And unity should be a high priority with us. And finally, God loves the poor. God loves the poor. Verse 10. All they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. This verse is very striking. The only thing the Jerusalem leaders are concerned that Paul and Barnabas should not lose sight of is the poor. If you like, their parting words were, don't forget the poor. And then it turns out this is the very thing that Paul himself is already eager to do. The word eager has the sense of being zealous, of making every effort, almost of being in a hurry to do something. In other words, alongside preaching the same gospel, all the apostles have the same priority, care for the poor. And where does this come from? It comes from the heart of God. All through the scriptures, we find that God loves the poor. He loves those on the margins. He loves those who can do nothing for themselves. And he wants us to care for them on his behalf. Now, how that's worked out varies from person to person and church to church. Paul himself devoted huge amounts of energies to organizing a relief fund from the more affluent Gentile churches to help their poorer brethren in Judea. Dave Cooper, as we've heard, is passionately committed to supporting the work of Tear Fund in the third world, and I urge you to respond to what he's shared this morning. I personally encourage people to sponsor a child in a poor country through the work of compassion. Others work with Beesom and the Food Project to help the poor in our neighbourhood. What matters is that we remember the poor. We don't let ourselves forget them. And we let the love of God prompt us to take action on their behalf.
Today, we're celebrating harvest, giving thanks for crops sown months previously and now full ripe. Today, God has sown into your heart and my heart this teaching from Galatians. What will its harvest be? Tomorrow? Next year? In eternity? Let's pray. Let's just allow the Spirit of God to sow a seed in our hearts from what we've heard. Maybe a relationship that needs to be put right. Maybe a commitment you've been meaning to make but just never quite got round to it. Let the word of God dwell in you. And now if you know what you should do about this, would you commit yourself before God to take that next step? And if you don't, would you ask God to show you, to make it clear? Lord, may your word not return to you empty, but accomplish what you desire and achieve the purpose for which you sent it, that the harvest in our lives and in your world might redound to your glory. For Jesus Christ's sake, amen.